Okay, so John chapter 9, the healing of, of the blind man. Well, John 9 verse 1, as Jesus passed by, passed by there, that's the same uh, Greek phrase as, as you've got there in chapter 8 verse 59, the Jews were about to kill Jesus, and he somehow passes by and walks away from them. And as he passed by, he sees a man who's blind. Now, you can imagine the situation that there's... Um, a, a dangerous situation and he manages to uh, scoot out of it and if I were Jesus I could imagine myself walking very briskly very quickly let's get out of here guys and uh, he's got the disciples uh, with him just let's walk quickly and um, <laughs> jump in a taxi kind of thing and get out of here as Jesus passed by he notices a blind man and he doesn't just quick, quick cure the guy. He actually goes into uh, a fairly, uh, for him, lengthy process of spitting on the ground, making the clay, and anointing him, saying, now you go and wash in the pool of uh, Siloam. And uh, admittedly, then, uh, the rest of the story is about the blind man uh, away from Jesus. And there seems to have been a, a period of time in which he's taken to the Jews. The Jews call his parents, his neighbors come. Etc. And then sometime later, Jesus finds him. So I do get the impression that Jesus was walking away pretty briskly, maybe not getting in a taxi exactly and getting out of the uh, bad area or whatever that he was in. Uh, my point is that in the middle of a crisis, it's very easy to think I've got to focus just on this issue and I've got no time for anything else. Look, these guys are trying to kill me. I'd just better walk pretty quickly out of here, away from here, get out of here. But as Jesus was in the midst of his crisis, he noticed human need. And that is, I find, such an exhortation of daily life, because that is what life is like, isn't it? A series of mini-crises. Oh dear, hang, i got to do this, i got to run here, run there. And then, nope, we've actually got to be sensitive to human need all the way through. So then the disciples uh, comment to him, uh, well who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now the Jews thought that every disability which there was, was a result of some specific sin, and each disability they connected with, with some kind of sin. And for them to be born blind, and uh, if you look in D.A. Carson's commentary on, on John, you'll see he lists all the, tal, uh, all the uh, quotes in the Talmud about this. Uh, for a man to be born blind, they assumed that, therefore, his mother had committed adultery. And I think in that you have another connection with what we've just read in John 8, of the woman caught in adultery as a result of that uh, interaction that's why the Jews try to kill Jesus and he passes by and Jesus in the lovely way that he had comments on the question w without sort of directly answering it but he goes on and talks about a bigger principle and okay he says verse 3 this man nor his parents have sinned that's not the issue but that the works of God should be made manifest in him I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day because the night comes when no man can work 
so I think what he's saying is that, look, guys, don't get so caught up on this issue of the fairness of suffering. Why suffering? See the human need and do something about it. And I've got to get on and do the works or the miracles in this context of, of, of God while it's day, because the night is coming, death, when no man can work. And this is, again, so relevant, I think, to our very navel-gazing, introspective 21st century life, where there are so many people, including fine brothers and sisters, who are so caught up on this issue of why suffering, the fairness of the whole thing, why this, why that, why is this person suffering, why that, why is you know, so many people suffering, etc., etc., why this, why that. And Jesus is saying, well, it's not a direct consequence of sin. Suffering and sin are not necessarily, in this sense, uh, connected. But, leave that question. The point is, here is human need. I have, like any human being, only got limited time. The night is coming when no man can work. I'm the light of the world. And of course he said, you are the light of the world. So it's all relevant to us as well. Um, I must get on and do God's works for this man. And that is really my comment on the whole question of why suffering and, and all these sort of metaphysical, uh, philosophical kind of questions. This isn't fair, that's not fair. Trying to, to, to probe issues that are beyond us. The point is there is human need right in front of us. Even if we are passing by in the midst of a crisis, uh, and we must be sensitive to that and do our part for God, for that suffering person. Now, I think that Jesus specifically chose to, to heal this blind man in order to challenge the Jews' uh, bunk theology on, on this point. And I noticed that whenever he tried to engage with Jewish theology that was wrong, he does so at the points in which it was devaluing to the human person. At the points in which it was damaging to, to people, as people. And so that is why I, I think he chooses to cure him in the way that he does. He spits on the ground, verse 6, makes clay of the spittle, anoints the eyes of the blind man. Well, again, uh, Carson's commentary quotes uh, a, a whole load of uh, references in the Talmud where they list a number of things which should not be done on the Sabbath. And this includes ploughing, and I wondered if that was uh, why he, as it were, ploughs his bit of spittle into the, uh, into the, into the um, dust, into the, the soil there, to, uh, as it were, plough. Um, anointing was not allowed. Curing was not allowed, curing people. And kneading, kneading as in kneading of dough, was not allowed. And that's obviously what Jesus did in a very small way. Why then does he, he do this? Well, I think that he, he does it in order to purposefully engage with their, their false theology. And to show that this is, is nonsense 
because it stops a person being healed, because it's damaging to a person. And that's why I think he purposefully chose to do a number of things, uh, a number of miracles on the Sabbath. So then, we have certain positions relating to, if you like, theology, doctrine, which are very different to that which a lot of, uh, a lot of other people hold. And the temptation for some people, maybe not all of us, but for some people, it was a temptation for me uh, 20 years ago, and uh, my brain was uh, functioning better than it is now, and I, I was, you know, young guy, university student, uh, figured out that, you know, there's no trinity and there's no devil and all this. And uh, it's a great uh, temptation, I think, for some personality types at some point in their lives to get involved in, if you like, religious controversy for the sake of it. But Jesus only did that in order to help people and in order to restore the value and the meaning of the human person. And I, I think uh, our community needs to, to take that seriously and to look at the issues over which Jesus engaged people and those over which he did not. For example, there are no such things as demons in the way that people believed in them in the first century, but the Lord did not engage on that point. So then, he says in verse 3 there, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work. Now, I suggest that what he's saying there is that, look, God has set up certain potential works, for example, to cure this blind man, and therefore I must work. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, and look, we're all on borrowed time. The night is coming when no man can work. So, as Paul says later on in the New Testament, God has prepared certain good works that we should walk in them. But, of course, we don't have to do them. But the point is, if we don't do them, so much potential is being wasted. So, as I understand him there, he, he's saying in verse 3, the works of God should be manifest in him, and so I must work. I must do what God has potentially prepared, and there's not much time, so I must do this. So there he was, passing by from his persecutors, and as he passes by, in the midst of this crisis of life, he's thinking, well, look, all the same, I, I know I'm just caught up on this problem in my life, but I, I must not let that stop me doing the works of God. If this man is right there in front of me, in my path, I must not ignore him. This is so relevant, you know, for every single one of us, in our daily lives. And although we might consider ourselves to be busy people, I would also submit that in our generation more than any other, there is so much temptation to fritter away your life. For crying out loud, watch how much time you are wasting on Facebook and, and all this social networking and sitting in front of computers, etc., etc. I mean, at the end of, of your life, are you just going to be a person who's written X thousand, million, whatever, words of emails or little social messages? Are you going to be a person who's clicked on your mouse a billion times? And is that all in the end that you have? Man at his last end comes before God, you know, absolutely with, with nothing apart from utter gratitude for his grace. So it, it, it's not that, you know, 
I'm saying we should do works so that we get saved. Not at all. Because we're saved by grace, not by works. But the whole point is that because he has saved us by grace, we cannot be passive to that. And so he's saying, God has set this up. I know we're busy, guys. We're just passing by, getting away from people trying to kill us, getting out of a bad area, as it were. But look, we've, been, we've encountered human need, and I must make the time, however briefly, to address this. And that's just what he does. As I say, I mean, the whole thing, if you read John 9 from verse 2 to verse uh, 7, you could say this whole thing could have happened in uh, 60 seconds maybe two minutes at the most I mean you can read the record in, in less than a minute far less than a minute and if that's literally all that was said well he spared a minute in the midst of a crisis to heal someone you know he doesn't go with him to the pool of Siloam he, he sends the man on his own there um, and then he, uh, he Jesus moves on now we are the light of the world Jesus says and yet he says here that I am the light of the world in other words all that is true of him becomes true of us in John 9 verse 4 in the AV I must work the works of him that sent me the RV reflects the I think the manuscript difficulties by saying we must work the works of him that sent me in other words all that is true of Jesus is true of us. It's not that we behold him as we might behold a beautiful picture uh, and sort of engage with it from a distance. We are him. We are part of him. If we are baptized into him, all that becomes true of him becomes true of us. And all that we read of him here in the Gospels becomes an imperative to us. How should I live my life? I mean, I get this question so many times. Should I do this? Should I not be doing that? And the question is really not that at all. The question is, what would Jesus do? We are in him. He becomes this insistent, 24-7 demand upon us. So then, <clears throat> going, going on there in verse, uh, verse 7, Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam which is by interpretation sent to the water at Siloam but throughout John's gospel Jesus is the one who was sent and in fact he, he says this um, verse 4 I must work the works of him that sent me and so he sends this man to go and wash in the water of the sent place now there's clearly a reference then to, to baptism and I think that's why baptism is kind of structured into God's, God's uh, plan for us. And that you can't just drift. You've got to make a one-time decision that, yes, I will make the effort to do this simple thing. So Jesus had just uh, spoken. Six, he spoke, he spat on the ground, and I think his saliva represented his word, mixed with the dust of which we are made, and it's put on the eyes of the blind man. In other words, the blind man is made even blinder in a human sense. And then he has to go 
to the water which represents Jesus the, the sent one so then this is really the great paradox it's a bit like an alcoholic has to hit rock bottom before he can come up you have to recognize your blindness and I think our whole reading of the Bible our belief of the Bible our, our, our hearing of the words of Jesus in a sense this makes us more blind to the, to the way of this world so that we might see so that we might be led to baptism so that we might be led out of darkness into light Now, God, uh, Jesus had said in verse 3 that the whole purpose of this healing was so that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Not over him, not through him, but in him. And the real miracle that happened was, of course, of his conversion. It was the internal manifestation of God within that man that was so important. And I think the record in verse 9 is structured to... Uh, reflect that because he he says I am he some said this is he others said he's like him but he said I am and the he there is in italics he says I am ego eimi this is exactly what Jesus used in just well an hour or, or less uh, before this in John 8:58, when he said before Abraham was I am and the Jews took up stones to stone him the same phrase, and when people say, oh, Jesus said, I am, therefore Jesus is God, well, actually, no, because John 9, verse 9, the healed blind man also says exactly the same phrase, I am. But, it's quite clear that Jesus was alluding to the I am, as in I am that I am, as in the, uh, the name of God, but that's, that's clear. And yet this, this healed blind man is recorded anyway in the record it's framed in that way perhaps uh, that he uses the same phrase I am why? You know, Jesus has just said verse 5 I am in the world I am the light of the world uh, he, he clearly likes playing with this phrase and I think uh, seven times in John's Gospel he describes himself as I am something rather the true vine, the light of the world, etc. And so I think that this man, this healed blind man is now a channel, yet another channel for God's manifestation of his name of being manifested in him the great thing is that this guy at this time he really didn't know very much and you can see how his understanding progresses verse 11 they say well what happened and he says a man called Jesus came along and they keep on asking him and needling him and uh, they say well, what do you think of him 17 he says well I think he's a prophet and then 27 he says uh, well do you, you guys want to be his disciples in other words he's a master he's a leader and he's got disciples and they keep on needling him and 33 he says this man must be from God and finally when Jesus meets him um, oh, yeah, Jesus says 35 do you believe on the son of God and he says 36 who is he Lord that I might believe on him so he calls Jesus Lord, and then in verse 38, 
he says, Lord, I believe, and he falls down and worships him. So you can see the progression there. A man, a prophet, a leader of disciples, a man sent from God, and finally, one to be worshipped. So I think you see there, in this man, a progression in his understanding of the Lord's greatness. And I have seen it in my own life. I used to talk about Jesus when I was 18. And then I, I started to realize that uh, he's normally referred to by a title. And now I call him the Lord. The Lord. It just seems now that's my natural way to talk about him. And I, I think as we grow spiritually, we, we do grow in our appreciation of his greatness. And that is how it should be in any living, dynamic relationship. But you'll notice that he comes to this faith by his need to publicly testify to his thinking about Jesus. That progression we just worked through is actually brought about by the Jews asking him all these questions and the fact that he has to stand up and actually give some account. And I think it's very true that we've become more kind of fully conscious of what we believe um, by having to express it to someone else. We may already have a kind of intuition about it, but it's all very vague because it's sort of unformulated. And by having to express it to others, we actually clarify our own uh, beliefs and understanding. And I think this is why preaching or talking to other people is for our benefit. God could call who he wants as he wants, but he chooses to work through us. And I think this is why I encourage people to witness, to openly talk about their faith, and particularly about Jesus. Because by doing so, they or we will come to understand him better. That which we maybe have sort of subconsciously unformulated as sort of intuitions and unexpressed ideas within us, these things become more concrete and actual and formulated simply by having to talk to other people. Now also, I mean, this guy reflected upon life. 32, he says, well, since the world began, it wasn't heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. Absolutely right. All through the Old Testament, there is not a single example of someone having been born blind who was healed. Psalm 146, verse 8, says that God alone opens the eyes of the blind. And yet Isaiah 35 verse 5 talks about Messiah, that when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. And so this guy had thought about this and thought, well, yeah, the Bible says Messiah can open the eyes of the blind on God's behalf. Um, I'm blind. The only person that's going to cure me is Messiah. And he starts to think about this, that, well, I was born blind and... I, I can see now. That guy that did that, and you know, there would have been a, f a few, you know, dot, dot, dots in his thinking. That guy, he must be Messiah. He must be on God's behalf. He must be, as he puts it in verse 33, a man from God. It must be. And so. The more we reflect upon life and we try, and I know it's awfully difficult, but we try to 
attach meaning to events. And what we, we try to um, put life together upon the framework of our biblical understanding, which is what I think this guy did, we will come closer and closer to Jesus, to having him as our friend, to having him as someone whom we worship as our Lord and Master. And so in that sense, this blind man becomes a, a symbol of each one of us. That we, of course, were born blind. We were the ones who heard the word mixed with the clay, with the dust of our own, of our own lives and, and humanity, went to wash in Jesus, in Siloam, in the place of the sent one, and we came seeing. And it's us who have the vision, and not other people. But of course, we have religious leaders all around us, and people all around us, who are telling us, nah, that's, that's not the case. We're the ones who see, and you don't. And they, they say to him, uh, give God the glory. Um, yeah, verse 24 Give God the praise. Give God the glory. And that was a, 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 a phrase that really implied fess up. It was an admonition to repent and to tell the truth. And you've got it in Joshua 7 verse 19 where Joshua says to Achan, give God the praise, give God the glory. Look, tell the truth uh, and repent. And yet he, he's saying that. You're trying to put false guilt on me. You're trying to tell me that I was born blind because of some sort of sin. No. That, that's not the case. I'm not going to take your false guilt at all. Uh, because I know that this is for real. That I have met with this Messiah figure who can and has healed me. And that is, I think, so, so important that we will not take false guilt from others because of the reality of our personal experience of what the Lord Jesus has really done in our lives. And so then, we have had this transformation. We now can see, in, in, in a spiritual sense, because we have accepted our blindness because we've accepted our need we don't hear any more about this man but I think a lot of the uh, gospel records and the stories and the parables that you read there are kind of left hanging at the end because you think well what happened to him he was disfellowshipped he was excommunicated from the synagogue and his parents obviously didn't have the guts to uh, do that and they sort of kowtow and say oh no you know we, we, uh, we don't know any more than that, that he was born blind uh, there he was disfellowshipped from the synagogue going away with this very intense faith and experience that he opened my eyes and that of course is you know, as you try to imagine how he would have spoken to people um, what his body language would have been like how he would have deported himself how he would have spoken about his experience 
how he would have tried to help other people, how he would have talked to other blind people, how he would have talked to spiritually blind people, how he would have reasoned with his parents and the synagogue that disfellowshipped him. In all those, uh, that sort of exercise that I'm leaving with you, with you as kind of homework, how would he have spoken, acted, looked, the sort of things he would have done? That, those speculations, those imaginations, are the pattern for your life and mine, because we also are the healed blind man.